Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of The Left Pocket Project, where I bring you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is The Left Pocket Project Podcast. Before I begin today's episode, I wanted to take a moment to wish you all a very happy new year and to thank you for your support. Every like, share, and comment goes a long way. I'd also like to express my sincerest gratitude to those of you who have shown your financial support for the show via Patreon. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. And now for the podcast. For today's episode, Left Black and Badass, I spoke with Professor Sharice Burden-Stelly. Sharice is an assistant professor and Mellon faculty fellow of Africana Studies and Political Science at Carleton College. She received a PhD in African Diaspora Studies at the University of California, Berkeley in 2016. From 2015 to 2016, she served as the Five College Fellow at Amherst College, and in 2016 and 2017, she was the Chancellor's Postdoctoral Research Associate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Her areas of specialization include Black critical and political theory, epistemologies of Blackness, and the intersections of anti-Blackness and anti-radicalism. Her current book project, titled Epistemologies of Blackness, will be published in November of 2018. She also has published work in Souls, a critical journal of politics, culture, and society, and the CLR James Journal. Here is our discussion. Hi, Sharice. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I wanted to first talk to you about your research. Um, We met recently at a conference, and you were talking quite a bit about Claudia Jones and other um, people who were of African descent and women, um, specifically who were involved in some communist left-leaning activity. I wanted to learn a little bit more about your research, and beyond that, how did you end up studying this topic? What's your intellectual trajectory? Yeah, so um, just, you know, a little bit of background. I got my PhD in African diaspora studies from the University of California, Berkeley. I finished in 2016. And while I, when I applied to graduate school, I planned to work on black feminism and Africana womanism. Um, That's where I was, you know, as a, I guess, 21 how was I? Yeah, 21 or 22 year old, you know, <laughs> going into graduate school. I went straight from undergrad to um, to graduate school. Um, but as I kind of matriculated the program, I shifted pretty rapidly to thinking about political economy, initially kind of globalization and economic development. And then, you know, as I became indoctrinated <laughs> into <laughs> Marxism, um, I began to think a little bit more about new global architectures beyond kind of neoliberalization and what socialist or kind of Marxist and communist frameworks uh, lend to that project. And then uh, so out of that, the, the other part of that was being in an African diaspora studies program. I noticed that, especially in my department, the overwhelming majority of persons were doing cultural studies. And so one day, one of my friends and I, AJ Rice, he's a graduate student at Michigan State University. What up, AJ? Um, but yeah, so we were like, 
we just were looking for political economists in African diaspora studies and African American studies. We're like, where are the political economists, right? So we started going through all of these websites and there were just very few. And so that, you know, at that time it was kind of like, okay, why are there no political economists in uh, black studies? And why is it kind of overdetermined by like history, literature, and cultural studies. And so, you know, as I began to to kind of think through and research this question, I just noticed that there's a kind of link between what one might call intellectual McCarthyism and kind of the ascendance of Black studies in the 1960s and 1970s, and then the kind of turn to culture that happened as Black studies became institutionalized. And so I began to look at this phenomena at kind of the state level the institutional level in terms of the U.S. Academy and then the disciplinary level in terms of black studies. And so that was kind of the basis for my dissertation. And then as I began to study anti-radicalism or, you know, anti-communism, I began to see that communism was actually this overarching kind of category for all different forms of like counter-hegemonic or anti-systemic insurgencies and that it was very much bound up in anti-blackness, so in the kind of repression of blackness. And it really understood blackness as like always already or inherently insurgent or inherently the specter of destabilization. And so I came up with this, you know, I really started to explore how anti Uh, communism and anti-radicalism and anti-blackness were what I called interaction metaphors. So the way that they derived informative value from each other and informed each other as technologies of domination and repression. And so that was kind of my dissertation project. And, you know, out of in doing that research, I started to just come across a bunch of people that were uh, repressed, right? And that were deported specifically or were kind of subjected to the Cold War state. And so Claudia Jones came to me as part of that that work. I also did kind of case studies in my dissertation on CLR James Du Bois, who was indicted for his peace activism in 1951. Uh, I looked at Chetty Jagan in the case of Guyana because I was making the argument that part of anti-communism was like anti-interracialism. There was this huge anxiety about interracial cooperation. And as we know, Guyana is kind of a ethnically bifurcated society where there's the Afro-Guyanese and Indo-Guyanese. And initially when the um, the PPP was founded, it was a co, um, it was both African and Indian working together. And there was a way in which the United States with the kind of backing of the British government fomented racial antipathy to undermine the PPP, which was a left-leaning government. So anyway, to make a short story long, <laughs> um, Again, I was looking, I was thinking about the ways in which anti-communism was, has never really just been about communists. It's been about labor radicals and, and anti-imperialists and internationalists and union organizers and, um, you know, at a certain moment, homosexuals. So anybody who kind of defied what I call the pedagogy of the state. So that's how I came to Claudia Jones. And of course, as I, you know, began to move away from my dissertation or to like revise it and and do more research, I came across a whole host of other kind of radical black women who were linked to Jones or who had a similar type of project. So persons from like Grace Campbell in, um, you know, the 1920s, who was one of the kind of main members of the African Blood Brotherhood to all the way to like Vicki Garvin, 
and Queen Mother Moore, who kind of, you know, was her politics. She was a member of the the Communist Party for a very short period of time, um, thanks to the Scots, you know, the Scottsboro case and the way that the ILD, the International Labor Defense, uh, defended the Scottsboro Boys. That got her interested in communism, but she eventually moved on to more kind of pan-Africanism and black nationalism, which was actually a common route for uh, many black activists who were not they a lot of black people were drawn to communism and to kind of the left, not only because of economic re- reorganization as such, but also because these groups tended tended to be anti-racist and anti-imperialist, anti-colonial, and at least nominally supported, um, you know, racial equality. So, I think I answered your question. Yes. <laughs> you did. You did some and more, actually. Um, but you you raised a lot of interesting points that I wanted to follow up on, actually. Um, the first of which, and there are many, so be patient with me. Um, the first of these, actually, is your comment about the ways that some of some of the anti-communist stuff um, coming from the government, the anti-communist sentiment, was reading blackness itself as insurgent. And what's hap- what's interesting to me is that in a lot of sort of cultural studies programs and even the cultural turn in a lot of our politics, I think that a similar track is taken. So we see a lot of the time that blackness itself in, in popular discourse is also seen as radical and as somewhat of a it's somewhat a substitute, a surrogate for political activism and economic activism. Um, so if you could talk, I mean, maybe I'm completely wrong here, but it seems to be that the sort of racial discussion has taken uh, so much precedence that it, it sort of obscures some of the other things that are related to um, freedom and related to liberation as a larger group for Black people, but that often gets sort of... Uh, put on the back burner. So if you could talk a bit about that, and then I also have many more questions um, about several <laughs> of the figures that you raised. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's, so there's the race, the race or blackness question on the one hand, and there's culture on the other. So part of my dissertation was a critique of what I call culturalism. So I'll get back to that in a second. I think that initially, essentially the, the argument that the state is, is making about blackness is an ontological argument. So it's making the argument that the very being of blackness is a threat. So it's not saying that it's radical in terms of progressive, but rather that it's a threat to the the socioeconomic hierarchies that are endemic in the U.S. as a liberal capitalist society. Mm-hmm. And so I think this goes back as far as, you know, the Alien Sedition Acts of 1790, because at the same time that the, the kind of anti-foreign sentiment that the United States was expressing in those acts was kind of an aversion to radical expats from the French Revolution, but also from the Haitian Revolution coming to the United States and radicalizing the enslaved. Mm -hmm. And so there's a way in which radicalism is a threat to the state, right? So anti, like anti-capitalism is a threat to the state. And then that's, that's very much bound up in blackness because of course, black people came or were uh, dragged to the United States, contrary to, the, I guess, the popular discourse that they were uh, voluntary laborers, I right. guess. <laughs> At least in Texas. <laughs> in Texas history books, they definitely are, you know, immigrants, right? That's it. Yeah. So <laughs> contrary to, to that, that discourse, right, they're dragged here as, um, not only as capital, but as, for you know, these vestibules of extreme surplus value extraction, but also as 
means by which, you know, the owners of capital accumulated wealth. And so for me, blackness serves all of these kind of economic functions. And so I don't think that blackness is ontological in the way that, let us say, Afro-pessimists argue, but I do believe the ontology of blackness is capital, right? And so I'm working, one of the projects I'm working on is called or it's about the structural location of blackness. And so it's about the way in which blackness serves all of these economic functions beyond just labor exploitation, that the very, the, like the, the ontology of blackness is these, these very different ways in which the black is a source of accumulation. And so, or, and also a source of disaccumulation, but you know, all, all of that to say, I think that for the state, it's not that black culture is insurgent and it's like, you know, objectively and it's the side of kind of like radical possibility in the way that it's it's thought of today but rather that if the black is liberated because of the way in which blackness is so bound up in um the the expansion and reproduction of capital that the liberation of the black will fundamentally destabilize and fundamentally upend economic and social relations because of course the legitimating architecture is important to the reproduction of capital as well. So the way that we rationalize why it is that black people should always be exploited and uh, should always have the worst jobs and should be contained in, in the worst areas, you know, and should be warehoused and should have their labor either unremunerated or remunerated at levels vastly lower than other groups. And so this is this is what the this is how blackness is constituted, I think. And so that is why the black along with the radical, present par- both parallel and entangled kind of threats to the state. Mm-hmm. With respect to culture, yeah, so, so you know, Adolf Reed, who I love because he hates everything like me, um, <laughs> how, um, how cultural politics becomes like um, an ersatz politics, right? So it's, it's, a, suppo- it's, a sub- it's an actual substitute for politics. Um, it becomes a way, especially, you know, he talks about especially popular culture. It becomes a way in which ostensibly Black people are like just always already counter hegemonic, like always right. already contra or like anti, right? Um, and, and as we know, this is simply not the case because of the way in which commodification works, the way in which, uh, you know, reinscription and co-optation work. There's nothing inherently radical about cultural politics or about culture. And it in fact, it actually dovetails quite nicely with neoliberalization mm-hmm. um, because one can have all all of the cultural expression and cultural production one wants without objectively changing structural material conditions. And it's, I think culture historically has been a site of, can't, has been a counter hegemonic site in many ways. But at the same time, I think that our turn, our emphasis on culture and black cultural uniqueness and cultural productivity is mapped onto this kind of linear progress narrative and this narrative of, of black agency and black resistance, right? We always have to think of blackness as resistant because if we don't think about blackness in relationship to agency and resistant uh, and resistance, then we're just slaves, right? Right. <laughs> Except that's a distortion of how history actually works. So, right. I mean, even the question of slavery, right, is one of the one of the funny things in teaching African diaspora is the fact that once you raise the reality that there were black slaveholders, right, in many parts of the world that kind of throws people for a loop, you know? Um, and I think we can often talk about some of the ways in the present that you do see black people um, being co-opted or their movements being co-opted or even leaders themselves joining the state and engaging in some activities that work toward oppressing their fellow 
uh, black people. So on that note, I wanted to ask you a bit more about this, the state repression. Um, so you talked a lot about how the state itself was, on the one hand, um, configuring blackness as a sort of politically radical project in a lot of ways. Um, and I wanted to find out what did that repression actually look like? Because I, I think we have a sort of general idea. Yes, there was HUAC and there was McCarthyism and all these other things. But if you could talk a tad more about the way the state itself and the mechanisms that were that they used, how they looked on the ground, historically speaking. How the how repression looked on the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but I just you know I just wanted to reemphasize that it's not that the state is seeing blackness as objectively politically radical. It's right. like it's ontologically threatening, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that there's a difference. But we've we have conscripted that to mean politically political radicalism. But um, with respect to kind of surveillance. Uh, Okay, so J. Edgar Hoover was a young agent in the Bureau of Investigations, and he actually got his kind of bona fides through his prosecution of Marcus Garvey, right, Mm -hmm. and his deportation of Marcus Garvey in 1924, because Marcus Garvey was this radical, and again, even though Marcus Garvey was a capitalist, his racial insurgency and his mobilization of the black masses made him a radical, even though a lot, some of Garvey's policies were deeply conservative. So his view of Africa, like the Af- mm-hmm. that, you know, diasporic blacks need to go and like civilize black Africans. And of course, this is Hubert Harrison's critique of Garvey, like, hey, nah, they got it. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> they don't need a- us to come and save them. Right. Um, and so his racial radicalism, which is, of course, which is different than kind of economic or political ra- uh, radicalism is what is why he was targeted. And and so that was the start of J. Edgar, J. Edgar Hoover's career, who then becomes, you know, the, the leader of the FBI when they are rounding up people and uh, rounding up and deporting communists in 1919, you know, when they're having all of these hearings in the 1930s about, you know, whether or not these radical groups are, are going to overthrow the government, whether this is their, um, you know, their aim. And, you know, especially post-World War II during the Cold War, there's all of these hearings, right? And so one example of this is Paul Ropes, and he's called before HUOC hundreds, you know, not hundreds, but but scores of times mm-hmm. to kind of defend whether or not he's a member of the Communist Party. And, and of course, Paul Robeson makes this link between he, him being a civil rights activist and him being accused of being a communist, right? So he says, the problem is not that I'm a communist. You guys don't actually care about that. You care about the fact that I'm working on behalf of my people. Mm-hmm. If you were in an organization that a purported communist was part of, you could be called before HUAC. Um, These people, so there was a a huge guilt by association. If at one point, if you owned a Paul Robeson record, you could be questioned. The FBI would follow you around. These or leftist organizations were horribly infiltrated. And so, you know, there, there are millions of pages of FBI documents uh, based on kind of these informant um, reports and, and more and more, you know, as these things are FOIA'd and declassified, we're finding out more and more people were actually informants. Mm-hmm. And so there was, so there was, you know, surveillance, there was straight up like murder. So there were dozens, and I would lean to say hundreds of people who were just murdered for their politics, deportation. So Claudia Jones deported, right? CLR James didn't get deported, but he was under deportation proceedings. He decided to leave voluntarily so that at some point he could come back. In the 1930s, George Padmore, who was a student at Howard, was denied reentry into the country, and so there's a and so there is this kind of carcerality to it, right? Where either you can't, you know, you 
it's a circumscription of movement. So whereas, you know, Padmore couldn't come back into the country, scores of people had their passports revoked. So Du Bois had his passport revoked. Paul Robeson, um, Eslanda Robeson, Shirley Graham. So all of these persons could not, even Marvell Cook, um, you know, had her passport taken. So these people couldn't leave the United States. So that was that was an, another ubiquitous form of kind of, of, of status repression. There was like literal erasure of the the intellectual McCarthyism that I spoke about is kind of these, this literal erasure of people from like history books. Mm -hmm. And so for instance, Shirley Graham Du Bois had beef with Langston Hughes at one point because he refused to include Du Bois and Robeson in some book about great black Americans. And so people would literally just not include you. We still see the effects of this today. I can name probably five communist, you know, black communist thinkers and nobody would know about them. And Mm -hmm. like when we think about civil rights, we know about Thurgood Marshall and we know about the NAACP, but we don't know that the International Labor Defense actually created, uh, you know, their court cases created a bunch of civil rights, um, you know, civil rights precedents like fair jury selection um, in their defense of people like Angelo Herndon and the Scottsboro Boys. And so there, so because communism is, you know, you might as well say that you're like pedophile or something we say you're a communist because we have that feeling about it we don't know all of the like (laughs) all of the work like all of the gains that we have basically all the social legislation came from socialist and leftist kind of mobilization so things like eight hour work days Mm -hmm. right things like the end of you know child labor laws these came from leftist socialist and communist organizations and so that's a, that's to me a, one of the most enduring. The epistemological repression is one of the most enduring forms because we see it today. Like, and it to me it has to, a lot to do with why in Black studies we learn a lot about literature, we learn a lot about cultural studies, and we learn a lot about mm, particular aspects of history. But there's a dearth of like critical political economy. Um, Marxism is marginalized or bastardized or erased completely. And mm-hmm. so we have a very kind of incomplete way that we um, know the world and we we turn to abstraction and identity politics, um, which whatever, people should do whatever they want. But you know, th- these are the <laughs> things that, these become the sites of radicalism because of the the kind of erasure that's a product of, of McCarthyism. And also this kind of transition from anti-communism to anti-terrorism, which is a relatively seamless transition. You know, there's really a conflation in, 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 in status discourse between kind of uh, radicalism, extremism, and terrorism. These words are used relatively interchangeably. And so, for instance, so, you know, there's like the black identity extremist thing that came out earlier this year. Um, this document about black identity extremists. But it's interesting because in the 1970s, when organizations were planning the Six Pan-African Congress, there are the, there are like a lot of files on the, the, the Six Pan-African Congress and they're very heavily redacted. It's one of the most redacted files I've ever seen. Mm. And what they were, the reason why they were surveilling it is because they were saying black extremists were involved in this planning. So black people who wanted, you know, who believed in self-determination, uh, who believed, who, you know, who believed in using force and violence against the government and who believed in kind of supporting and were actually sending money to these guerrilla struggles in Africa and in the global South more broadly. And so this understanding of extremism 
And, you know, in, in some cases they were refer, uh, referred to as terrorists. And of, of course, now we conflate terrorism with kind of, you know, Islamic kind of Middle Eastern-ness, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. It's really not very, you know, it's... It's, very it's not seen as a domestic so much, uh, domestic it, issue. Exactly. And it's also not, you know, it's... This is why, you know, people are killing, like, Sikhs. It's what I'm saying is, like, you, the U.S. is not really sophisticated with this fucking discrimination. Like, they just... Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you kind of look like it, it's like, all right. So, so but, but you know, the, the infrastructure for anti what we call anti-terrorism now was laid by anti-communism and the and and other forms of anti-radicalism that inhered in anti-communism so that's what i mean by there was a seamless a sort of seamless transition mm-hmm. and it's also interesting too the way that both sets of both anti-communism and anti-terrorism ha- just so happen to rope in um specific ethnic and racial groups right um if you look at a lot of anti-communist uh movements there were often or the people who were often the victims of this process were of color or of jewish descent um and in the case of obviously anti-terror measures most of the case most of the people who are roped in by it um victims of it are of arab muslim um and middle eastern descent so it's it's pretty convenient that they also happen to involve this sort of racial component right not just the the political so you talked a lot about the intellectual erasure of of you know people who were um, black and communist, black and Marxist, black and left-leaning of any sort. And not just, I think one of the things I see a lot in the present is not just the erasure of the person necessarily, but oftentimes you'll have the person, people will be knowledgeable of the person, but they mm-hmm. won't have any basic you know, functional knowledge of their leftist and left-leaning organizing in history, right? So you see yep, this even right. with, with people as famous as Martin Luther King. Very few Americans most likely know that he himself had socialist leanings and cavorted with socialists and often, you know, was kind of incorporating a lot of this language in his speeches and activism, um, just to cite a super famous person um, of African descent in U.S. history. But you know, beyond beyond that sort of marginalization in from the historical record, what were some things that were going on contemporaneously, like at the time that these people were active, um, that also sort of erased them intellectually? Can you can you talk a bit more about that, and perhaps also um, the ways that infiltration worked during the process? Yeah. So, what was going on? At, there was a there's especially in the 1950s or like the post-World War II moment, there's a confluence of a whole host of events. There was decolonization. There was a formation of the UN and kind of the, the consolidation of a, a very kind of influential, like third world block. There was non-alignment. There's a non-aligned movement that really emanated from the 1955 Bandung conference. There was, and then in 19, of course, uh, 1961 or is it 1966? either 1961 or 1966, I don't know why I always get this confused, but then there was a, I think it's 1966, there's a tricontinental con- uh, conference uh, that Fidel Castro convenes in Havana that is really a radicalization of, of the of the Bandung sentiment, right? Because it's it's not just heads of state, it's guerrilla groups, mm-hmm. it's, um, ins- it's insurgent groups generally, it's radicals who are committed to not only kind of anti-colonialism which can which can have a can be quite conservative right, right. anti-colonialism is not uh, is, does not have to be leftist but there but you know the tricontinental con- uh, conference was explicitly anti-capitalist explicitly anti-imperialist they you know they um declared their solidarity with Vietnam and so you know this is 
the Cuban Revolution obviously was, you know, 1959 was this huge, this kind of watershed moment because it was, you know, it, it defied this kind of a tacit agreement between the United States and the Soviet Union that the Soviet Union would kind of control its sphere in Eastern Europe. The United States would control basically everything else, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and so and so Cuba really upended that agreement. And of course, we see a whole bunch of fuckery that comes out of that, including the Bay of Pigs. Um, but also the Sino-Soviet split was really important. This kind of this break between the Soviet Union and um, Mao's China, because what it did was it really racialized socialism and it really mm -hmm. racialized third worldism, too, because what Mao was saying was that essentially the Soviet Union is white imperialist as well, that they were trying to dictate and determine what socialism should look like in the global south. And so in in, in in ways, you know, they were they were reproducing the imperialism of the West. And of course, George Padmore, when he broke with with the Communist Party, was making a similar type of argument vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union's failure to condemn the invasion of Abyssinia in 1935, which is, you know, a really important diasporic moment mm -hmm. um, and a, a diasporic event. And so when countries were decolonizing and trying to think through kind of who they were going to align with, oftentimes they were looking to Cuba and China in lieu of the Soviet Union, That's right? right? Or they were kind of navigating all three of these kind of socialist, these socialist poles. At the same time that in the United States, organizations like, you know, the Black Panther Party uh, for Self-Defense, the uh, Congress of African Peoples, you know, all of these different types of radical organizations were taking these routes or these kind of pilgrimages, if you will, to Cuba. They were going to China. Uh, they were establishing these connections with with. Amilcar Cabral um, mm -hmm. and with, you know, Seco Ture, all of these people who were who were to the left of, um, you know, who, who are not only on the left, but were also Pan-Africanist and third world, uh, third worldist and deeply committed to kind of the, you know, racialized people as the vanguard of the revolution. Right. Not the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And so I think that 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 sparked or that kind of reified the United States aversion to racialism right and so they become if it's they become very kind of hostile to nationalisms that aren't kind of right-leaning and that aren't about capitalism and that aren't about kind of you know black power through accumulation right so like black very, capitalism in other words right? exactly yeah. right so you know they become very weary of this this form of like third world solidarity it becomes very very um threatening to the way that you, the United States is narrating itself as like the leader of the free world and the leader of democracy, um, and also the way it's narrating itself about move, you know, moving toward an anti-racist future and kind of trying to reduce uh, racism that is still very much rampant in the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s, trying to reduce that to like a Southern anomaly, mm -hmm. right? So all of these connections that are being forged, all of these kind of mutual recognitions that are happening are undermining this narrative of, of the United States and are making blackness even more threatening, So, if, which really creates the conditions for like COINTELPRO. That coupled with all of the urban uprisings that are happening throughout the 1960s, right? Especially 1968 after the assassination of Martin Luther King, like something like 25 cities like erupt. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so next 
year is 2018, which is like the 50 years of what, you know, Emmanuel Wallerstein and others refer to like the world revolution of 1968. So everybody was cutting up. It was students, <laughs> right? It was students vying for like black studies programs. It was workers such as, you know, that's when the, the revolutionary union movement was founded, you know, 1968. So it was workers, it was students, it was the formerly colonized, it was, um, you know, women. So everybody you know, felt there was this palpable feeling that like a better world was possible and that perhaps capitalism had had reached its asymptote. And so 1968 was just this extremely violent and extremely repressive, but at the same time, extremely kind of radical and extremely like, progressive moment. So all of the, like the fact that all, there's also the anti-war, right? Anti-war movement was going on at this time, um, protesting United States invasion of, you know, Vietnam, Cambodia. So all of this, coupled with the United States um, increasing militarization after World War II, the, U- the U.S. never really disarmed, right? Because, of course, military production, what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, was kept continued to be the center of, of U.S. accumulation. And so all of that militarization also created the conditions for massive amounts of repression um, that we see, you know, so, so the SWAT teams, SWAT teams really are innovated in this moment, with weapons, like tanks, mm-hmm. <laughs> armored cars, right? Automatic weapons. This becomes normalized at this moment because of this confluence of kind of like internationalism, anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, anti-racism, anti-establishment politics. So in this in this segment, you actually mentioned quite a bit about the sort of racialization of socialism, Re- mm-hmm. refitting the face of socialism to be one of third world solidarity, one of, you know, formerly colonized people uprising and overthrowing their, the yoke of colonialism and the like. But at the same time, you, you mentioned earlier that there was a break in the 30s and 40s of people who had initially considered communism and socialism more broadly, who then looked instead to pan-Africanism. Um, and perhaps some of them, you know, there were a few people who mixed and matched the two, if you will. Um, but I'm curious a bit more about that, because you you had mentioned that there were some, some of these breaks were motivated by just um, an inconsistency in sort of the application of socialist policies toward people of color, despite some of the gains uh, that socialists had made in the United States, at least, to connect with African Americans, particularly in the South. So could you talk a, a, a tad bit more about that? And if, I mean, sort of how this dovetails into what we're seeing in the present, because at the moment, I think after the election of 2016, I've heard over and over that socialism is a white thing. There seems to be a major distortion of what the left and what socialism is, and particularly how people of color from around the world fit into the process. So can you add a little bit to this? Can you sort of contextualize this current moment by speaking about the past? Yeah, so I think they're, they're kind of, I would say... I you know mentioned maybe three major things that kind of turned black folk away from the communist party. Number one was world during World War II, there was a detente between the Soviet Union and the United States, such that the communist party was encouraging people to join the war effort, right? And so they also kind of lessened their explicitly like anti-racist and kind of anti-imperialist rhetoric because obviously they needed all fucking hands on deck mm-hmm. to defeat the not you know the Nazi threat. So anti-fascism really um, moved to the forefront. And so in, in a particular sense, you know, some black people felt like the Communist Party was taking up their cases when convenient for them, or taking up the cause, or dropping the cause when convenient. 
so that was one aspect of it. So this is like the, you know, 19, you know, 1940s, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, There was the Khrushchev revelations, which I believe was 1957. It might've been 1954. I believe it's 1957. And so that was essentially when um, Nikita Khrushchev revealed the horrors of the Stalinist regime, all of the show trials, the massive amounts of repression, you know, people being sent to Siberia, work camps and work to death. There was actually an African-American that died, African-American communist that, that died in one of those work camps. Hmm. And so that turned many people off of communism because, you know, it seemed that, you know, it was this repressive, you know, this repressive regime, not unlike the United States. So there was this way in which the Soviet Union was was starting to represent repression in much of the same ways that the United States was. And so this turned um, a lot of people off. I could be wrong here, but I know one of the things that caused a break at some point around, you know, the end of the Soviet Union itself, um, because there were some there were some tensions between Cuba and the Soviet Union. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but just thinking about the 80s and the special period in Cuba, perhaps, made some turned some people off but that's much later on so yeah i would say by the 1980s the black population like i think that the 1930s and early 1940s was like the apotheosis of black involvement in um in the communist party but i also what i would i will say though i think is by the 1960s there was a resurgence of like black nationalism mm-hmm. and of pan-africanism that in which people i i think black people were combined you know they were they weren't necessarily scientific socialists or they were trying to blend scientific socialism with pan-African solidarity and with kind of black nationalist sentiment. And in fact, there was a bunch of people who were expelled from the Communist Party for nationalism. I think Harry Haywood is one of them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they were they were pushed out because they're basically being too black, right? Or too <laughs> pro-black. So I think that there came a moment when it seemed that com- or socialist commitment to, or, you know, communist commitment to the black community had waned, coupled with, you know, the kind of rethinking of what kind of a leftist or a socialist nationalism looked like. Um, I think that that was much more palatable for black people. And they, you know, they had this, black leftists had kind of a, you know, like a, it just, it, they had a pragmatic relationship, you know, with, with, with the communist party. Some were straight up anti-communist, even though they themselves were socialists. But anyway, some were straight up anti-communist. Some just picked and choose what they, you know, what was useful for them. Some were, you know, what might, what might call like voluntarists. And so I think that there were a whole host of ways in which people were just trying to figure out like, how do we get free? And so an adherence to like this strict scientific socialist approach wasn't necessarily, it wasn't the way, right? It wasn't, it wasn't something that was useful. I think that that relates to, uh, the problem, the problem, I don't know. The problem with, I think a lot of, with, with, a lot of people and with, I guess, the current generation, I hate to talk about the current generation, <laughs> like, you know, whatever, like I'm a grandma or something, but I think that we are deep, uh, deeply, a uh, deeply ahistorical people because I, I think Mika, Mon- Mika Makalani's work is instructive insofar as he showed that it was people of color who helped to kind of formulate the the national question and the Negro question in the communist international, you know, in the 1920s, because right. there was, you know, the whole black belt thesis that was like 1928 uh, and 1930. But, you know, it was it was South African communists and, and Negro communists like, you know, Claude McKay, Cyril Briggs, who are held, who were who are deeply 
kind of involved in the formulation of communist policy. And so to say that it's a white thing is just uh, not correct. So there's like James Ford, there's William Patterson, there's Ben Davis, there's Claudia Jones, there's Louise Thompson Patterson. There's all of these people who are black communists who are who are on the Central Committee who are kind of deeply um, influential, at, especially like in the 1950s. And so I think that perhaps with, there is a way in which persons who identify as socialists or democratic socialists or communists or whatever currently can be, can downplay race or they can kind of marginalize, you know, the importance of race. But, and, you know, and of course, and the communist party has had like an ambivalent relationship to how, how much to prioritize the national question or the race question or whatever. You know, I was in Gerald Horn's papers and there was a bunch of documents on, you know, the, the CPUSA in like the 1990s. And this was a big, like the idea, the, the uh, conversation about racial chauvinism had not died, right? And the mm-hmm. ways in which blackness had become, or Afri- the role of African-Americans had become a central policy in 1957. And there's a way in which people, you know, black communists were like, hey, we're actually not doing service to this this important plank of our platform. And, you know, white people are still disregarding black people and white people are still not treating, you know, black workers as if they you know, are the vanguard of <laughs> the revolution. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a way in which black issues are continue are continuing to be sidelined, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, it you know, I think that like any kind of interracial organization, the race question is always going to be one that's contentious. At the same time, in black organizations, the race questions produces fundamental distortions. Mm-hmm. You know, people assume that race, you know, race is experienced the same by everyone that, it, you know, you're just black. And it's like, yeah, it doesn't actually work like that because that black person is the one that's oppressing your black ass. <laughs> and so um, you might want to rethink that. And that's why I found the work of like Adolph Reed and um, Cedric Johnson and, you know, Ken Warren and, uh, you know, and Preston Smith to be compelling, mm-hmm. right, is that it, you know, it shows how race relations, the, the discourse of race relations itself is a, a, a class project. Race, or to, for me, blackness is, is, is deeply important, but I think that it needs to be engaged critically and it can't just be taken as a for granted kind of category of, of radicalism or of homogenous oppression. Going back slightly, uh, I just wanted to raise two points and then we're going to transition. We're going to do a hard shift uh, over (laughs) to talking about some of the individuals whom you've studied. But two things. First of all, um, one of the other arguments that I've heard forward, and and I buy in large part, about the breakdown of a lot of black communist activity in the United States uh, after the the post-war, post-World War II moment, um, has quite a bit to do with infiltration and these these matters of you know state repression right so just the very bare bones material aspect of um the state cracking down on a lot of these groups and breaking them up infiltrating them destroying their um their their sort of intellectual um purpose and uh, not purpose so much but their their influence i should say um and making them a threat to the degree that other black people who might have been socialist left-leaning etc were either afraid to openly embrace um, that or at least afraid to implement and in- incorporate these ideas in a more explicit way in a lot of their rhetoric. The other thing I've also heard spoken about, um, and you feel free to comment on either of these, is this question of how slavery itself fits into communism um, and how even certain colonial conditions fit into communism, especially thinking of slavery 
being characterized by Marx as a type of primitive accumulation or sort of the period before that, um, and being sort of excluding people who were enslaved and even colonial subjects to a large part from the idea of being workers, right, of being these sort of, they're not necessarily part of the industrial side of the worker, the working group that he's talking about in in a lot of his work. So if you could comment on that, maybe, and is, does, does any of this have to do also with the disconnect um, in, in some degree between people of color and the Communist Party as it's framed by, by whites? You know, <laughs> with the Marx question, this is what I'll say. Marx, Marx, obviously, like any human thinker, got some shit wrong. But here's the thing. People are willing to completely disregard Marxism because of its supposed Eurocentrism or because of this position on slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, Marx had a whole bunch of Civil War letters that I think would problematize persons' understanding of Marx and race. Whatever. Um, but people, okay, People will criticize Jefferson, right, for owning slaves, but they don't disavow liberalism. <laughs> That's their whole fucking ideology. So it's like, but they, but Karl Marx got a couple of things wrong or whatever. You don't like his position on rate, whatever it is you're critique of. And so that completely invalidates Marxism. Like, get the fuck out of here. That That's just bad faith, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, so it's, it's kind of like that it's not even <laughs> kind of worth um, in- engaging. It's it's just bad faith, right? So I think with respect to, you're absolutely right about Cold War liberalism, right? And so I have a whole a chapter about this in my dissertation to where uh, black cold, like there's Cold War liberalism generally, but then black Cold War liberalism absolutely foreclosed kind of um, leftist political space by, you know, becoming anti-communist by expelling communists or purported communists or communist adjacent folk from their organizations mm-hmm. uh, by moving away from internationalism and kind of renationalizing particular types of struggles by taking out any principles that were even adjacent to communism. So they, some people won't even talk about peace, right? Because ostensibly peace was a Soviet offensive and of this is why Du Bois is indicted because of his peace and pacifism work and for circulating the the um, Stockholm peace petition. Right. Because he's, he's that, against the, the nuclear um, expansion, right? Yeah. So he he linked war, imperialism, anti-blackness and kind of capitalist, he, he uh, capitalist kind of accumulation. He saw all of these things as like integrally linked. And he mm-hmm. writes a bunch of articles and gives a bunch of speeches about that. Like he, when he ran for the Senate in New York, he has all of these speeches about the ways in which kind of militarization and war, you know, war buildup is taking money away from the very much needed kind of social programs. And, so the Sojourners for Truth and Justice as well, part of their argument against kind of uh, their their pacifist argument was that it's like you're sending our sons to war. So they're specifically referring to the Korean War, but it's like you're sending our black sons to war to die. And they their option here is to get lynched. And so there is a way in which, you know, you're going to fight for freedom and democracy, you know, or you're going to fight communists over there. And yet and still the actual terrorists, right, the actual threat to social order are here, right? But in terms of, of Black Cold War liberalism, there's a way in which they were very much complicit in, you know, very narrow discourses of civil rights. And so, you know, Gerald Horn writes extensively about how the left was sacrificed and how labor was sacrificed and how unionizing was sacrificed for very kind of superficial or very kind of 
bourgeois liberal civil rights Mm -hmm. and we're still paying for that today and so he also talks about how then there was a turn to these particular types of nationalism as a side of radicalism because of the ways in which these anti-capitalist critiques and these kind of you know anti-imperialist and internationalist forms of mobilization were circumscribed by the confluence of black cold war liberalism and the cold war state um generally Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, it's its sort of one of the things that's frustrating is to see all of this stuff just sort of getting rehashed all over again. I mean, even in the debate that's been waged between Coates and West, not so much, I don't, I don't even want to talk so much about the debate between the two of them, but I think some of the fallout um, in social media and then people who have written about the debate, et cetera, on, on, to one degree, the people who are on Coates' side tend to bring up a lot of these sort of anti-internationalist arguments, right? They'll say, for example, we have to worry about what's going on in the United States. We can't talk about war. We can't talk about um, what's going on in Palestine. We can't talk about any of this other stuff. And that, of course, obscures any sort of black people beyond the borders of the United States. There's no discussion of them um, in this sort of larger uh, question of, of black humanity. Um, and and maintaining black life. It's a really interesting, just kind of watching it and seeing again, almost, I feel like I'm stuck in some sort of loop, right? Where we're just rehashing the same arguments that we heard back in the 1940s and then the 1950s and why we can't talk about what's going on beyond the United States, but then arguably why we can't talk about what's going on in the United States. I feel like there's a there's this strange um, limit when we try to actually talk about the differences between black people and what are, what is actually going on in terms of how we plan to help black people who are living in poverty. There's not a real um, interrogation of the means by which we've sort of tried to approach this question through politics or other means. So I, I think, though, that one of the other things that you said to kind of now go to our hard turn here. Um, you had mentioned you mentioned Du Bois, you mentioned Jones, you mentioned several others who have been integral to your work, and I wanted to hear a little bit more about them. So feel free to speak on those whom you've you felt had the most impact on some of your own political leanings or or your work. But I think one of the things that happens a lot in when we're talking about black uh, people or people of color in general who are socialists is that we keep hearing the same names over and over. And even nowadays, Claudia Jones's history, thankfully, has been recovered and really gone, you know, gotten a lot more attention. Um, but I'm wondering if you could talk a tad about the people who maybe haven't gotten so much shine in our popular discourse on um, leftists of color. And even if, if you have any particular movements that you've come across in your, in your research um, that you haven't even necessarily seen discussed in on left in left circles for example. Yeah, no, I'm like probably a Johnny come lately. I like all the people, you know, I like all the main people. But um, <laughs> um, you know, so I guess in terms of like who was um, formative to my thinking. Uh, so this is where you know my gender now, you know my my gender card gets pulled because it's mostly men and it's mostly Caribbean men just because I think a my training and b because like those are the those are the people who were um I think who are deeply um influential to me so persons like Walter Rodney um and CLR James and um Abdul Rahman Babu who is from Zanzibar Amilcar Cabral and then I think that I had to be much more um intentional about 
thinking through like so I, I think I, I actually kind of just stumbled upon women, right? So mm-hmm. I I knew about Claudia Jones because I had read Carol Boyce Davies' work, but um, you know, then I began to stumble upon like Shirley Graham Du Bois and um uh, specifically, you know, Gerald Horn's uh, biography of her. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Louise Thompson Patterson. I came actually. I came across a lot of these women in Eric McDuffie's book, um, "Sir Joining for Freedom," and you know, so he wrote about people like Louise Thompson Patterson and Esther V. Cooper Jackson, Grace Campbell, Charlotta Bass, uh, the Sojourners for Truth and Justice. So I came across a lot of those persons in his work, and also the work of like Dale Gore. So she has like "Want to Start a Revolution," and also interestingly, people like Vicki Garvin and even Lorraine Hansberry and Alice Childress, I came across a lot of those people in Du Bois's papers. Mm-hmm. I started to look for them in Du Bois's paper after I encountered them in David Levering Lewis's papers. And so he has he had all of these interviews with a bunch of people, but I was looking at his interviews with leftists and there was all of these people um, that that came up. So um, Ana Olivia Cordero, who uh, my girl Sandy Placido, she did her dissertation on her. So she was the wife of Julian Mayfield and she was a, you know, a, a Puerto Rican freedom fighter in her own right. So I came across, he did an interview with her because she was in Ghana with Du Bois. Um, of course, Shirley Graham Du Bois was married to him. And like, I had known about her just kind of superficially, but then I really started to look into her life and her being like a a global kind of figure Mm -hmm. in her own right. Louise Thompson Patterson, she was married to um, William Patterson, who was the art, you know, the main author of We Charge Genocide. But she also was, you know, um, in the Communist Party. She the the Sojourners for Truth and Justice, which was founded in 1951, was actually founded in her apartment. Mm. Uh, you know, as Londa Robeson, I came across her work or uh, as Londa Robeson, who is the wife of Paul Robeson. But, you know, reading Barbara Ransby's work, I learned a lot more about, you know, Essie Robeson as an anthropologist and as, you know, an activist in her own right and reading about all of these different women's, um, their letters to each other, their interactions with each other, which weren't always, you know, they weren't always affirming. That was insane, uh, I'm sure, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But they were definitely interesting. These, you know, and and many of these people were involved in like the Council on African Affairs, which um, Du Bois uh, ultimately joined after leaving the NAACP for the second time. And then, you know, looking through the, you know, the the FBI files, the CAA, I I discovered like Alpheus Hunton and Doxy Wilkerson and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my hatred for Max Yergin. Oh, I hate this man. Um, <laughs> I'll put as much as I hate Ralph Bunch, but that's another story. Post post nineteen thirty Ralph Bunch. But um, so you know the somebody that I discovered recently, actually, that I don't think gets a lot of shine. Her name is actually Elma Francois, and she is she was born in Saint Vincent, but she did a lot of activism in Trinidad and Tobago through she uh, an organization she co-founded called the Negro Welfare Cultural and Social Association. And so a woman that I love more than anything, Rhoda Reddick, another Trini scholar, she wrote the book on Elma Francois and essentially she was lit. Like she <laughs> um was, you know, all about the working class and poor people. She like organized um unemployed workers the Negro Welfare Cultural and Social Association was anti-fascist, anti-racist, anti-colonial, Marxist, and socialist. Mm-hmm. Um, they really um, organized the the massive resistance to the invasion of Abyssinia in 1935, and then kind of led the way for this massive general strike that that took place in 1937. 
So she's somebody that I just, I I don't even know. I just randomly came across her. And so I was like, okay, that's somebody I want to look into more in the future. The same with the woman called uh, Maida Springer Kemp. She was a Panamanian woman who was involved in union organizing. Like her parents were Garveyites or her mother was, you know, a follower of Garvey and Garvey deeply influenced her own development, which is actually the case for a lot of radicals, like a lot of their parents were involved with Garvey or they came to consciousness through some type of association with like Garveyism or the UNIA. Um, There's also Lucy Parsons, who is this like anarchist organizer, like, you know, just all around, you know, badass. And then, you know, something I've been I've been uh, looking into is the Black Women's United Front that was like kind of a, a subsection of the Congress of African People because they were like, hey, no, women matter too. And they were feeling like women's voices weren't being heard in the Con- Congress of African people. So they had these different kind of conferences and came up with these, uh, these couple of manifestos. So, um, these are just, you know, these are people, I don't know who, the thing is, I don't know what people don't know. I, I assume that everybody, I know everybody else knows, <laughs> but clearly that's not the case. So I don't know if people know these people like Charlotta Bass, was lit. She was one of the, you know, she ran for vice president. Um, she was one of the founders of the Sojourners for Truth and Justice. She's probably most known for like her, she, her editorship of the California Eagle, which is like this kind of black leftist paper, like a periodical. So these, these are, those are a bunch of people. And then of course, like, so, you know, there's people who are doing this work. Like I can't really claim the gender work. Cause that's really not the crux of my, you know, I, I look at, you know, the state and, and anti I, I look at, I'm a theorist. So people who are doing this work are like Dale Gore, Carol Boyce Davies, Eric McDuffrey, ba- uh, Barbara Ransby, Gerald Horn, Kianga Yamada Taylor, Angela Davis, Rhoda Reddick, uh, Nicole G, Alexander Floyd. And then you got people like Rose Brewer, Rhonda M. Williams, who is deceased, um, Eula Taylor and Joy James were like the OGs who've been doing this shit, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm probably only know enough to be ignorant. But, um, you know, but there are people who are doing this work, you know, LaShawn Harris, who I love. Um, Yeah. So there are people who are doing the work. But, you know, I'm just kind of starting to I just I look at women not because they're women, but because of what they contribute. Right. Right. So that that's my approach to gender. It's not I don't I don't automatically assume anything about women because they're women, but rather I think that these women contributed an immense amount to to the struggle for liberation and for you know uh, anti-capitalism you know pan-africanism et cetera et cetera so that's the extent to which I I kind of search for women I guess <laughs> I mean I, no but I think that's important because I as much as I appreciate the I think there are a lot of turns lately to be more inclusive and thinking more about things in, in an in intersectional way. Um, so people are like, well, we don't talk enough about these women or we don't talk enough about black socialists or we don't talk, you know, et cetera, fill in the blank. But it then becomes a question of a, a question of tokenization and then be a matter of to some degree essentialism. And so I appreciate the, the approach that you're taking. And I actually wanted to ask you a bit more about that um, because you had mentioned in passing before that you were quite fascinated by the approach that people like Sylvia Winter will take Mm -hmm. right or took um so if you could talk a little bit more about about this approach yeah sylvia winter was like nah nah she has (laughs) she has this paper that's it's called like um it was like basically a critique of like liberal and marxist leninist feminism and she talks about like the structuring analogy of classarchy essentially what she's arguing is that there's ways in which particular articulations of feminisms 
take as a given the the project of oppression or that endemic in their analyses are like the overall projects of oppression. So they either center this idea of kind of liberal universalism with the case of liberal feminists, or they, they continue to center the idea that labor is like the means of liberation. And in doing so, they're reifying or they're reinscribing the logics or the, what she calls, you know, the, the structuring analogy in ways that are not actually liberatory. Mm-hmm. And so for me, and so she also has this other, other um, writings about gender versus genre where the, if we hold on to gender in particular ways, the way that gender is socially constituted to hold on, even if you're saying that women need to be moved to the center to hold on to this very category, I think of, of gender is not, it can't, it cannot move us beyond like the overdetermination of the human by man. Thinking with winter, I guess, you know, I'm not a feminist, right? I care about gender, but I'm not a feminist. So I guess my investment is in thinking about alternative gender or alternative ways to think about gender that aren't feminist. I think that because feminism is like the hegemonic or, or, you know, intersectionality, what's become known as intersectionality is like the, the primary way of thinking about gender, we try to fit everything into a, into a, a feminist framework. And so we call a bunch of people feminists because they have a gender analysis, but you know, I don't know that all of these people are feminists, not only in terms of, not only because it would be anachronistic to call them that, but also because of their politics. I, I think that there is a gender politics that's not feminist. That's not about centering women or that's not about, you know, <laughs> women being like the the arbiters of liberation like that's not their project but mm-hmm. they do care about gender they do care about having you know thinking through women's structural you know especially black women's like structural location but they're not but their 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 project to me is not a feminist one and that's not the shit on feminism you know whatever but it's just i think that there that you know when when there's only one it can become it can begin to ge- degenerate, right? And it also can can begin to become one one begins to take it up uncritically. Mm-hmm. And the, the only people that criticize it are like anti-feminists, right? right? But there's not like a there's not a generous critique. Um, and so you know, this is not really a novel. You know what I'm saying is not really novel. So somebody like Valethea Watkins, who the good homie Josh Myers, who's an assistant professor at Howard, put me onto her. So she's been making this, you know, that this argument for years, right, that there's a, not all gender analysis is feminism. And so I think that that's kind of where I am. I'm thinking through this kind of concept of like black Marxist humanism that I think a lot of radical black women were articulating. So for instance, the Sojourners for Truth and Justice, you know, they, a lot of people refer to them as feminists, but essentially one of the things that they say is that they formed that group to, because their husbands and men and leaders were being incarcerated and were being attacked by the state, right? They were being McCarthy'd. Mm -hmm. And so these women were mobilizing um, to free these leaders, not because, number one, because they were their husbands and they were their kind of like sons and brothers, but also because an attack on that, the, the attack on these leaders was an attack on socialism, an attack on the project of liberation generally, Right. And so even though they were they were a bunch of women getting together, it wasn't about 
it wasn't about them like centering their experience or their standpoint or whatever people talk about now. It was about kind of we need to do this work because of the ways in which um, repression is operating. Right. And so I, I just think that there's a, I think there's an epistemological, but also kind of a political difference in that approach. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that that's kind of where where I would, I, you know, would differ from. And, 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 you know, I guess maybe some feminists would say that that's their, you know, project too. But I think that what happens is that anything by women, anything by women that's progressive becomes conscripted as feminism. It's like, nah, mm-hmm. you can't just have everything just because it's women doing it. And they're talking about women, like gender, you know, and that's the other thing, like gender becomes reduced to women, but gender is not just about women, you know? Right. Gen- and I think that's why I appreciate Tommy Curry's work. You know, people could feel however they feel about Tommy, but like the man not is actually, it is changing the game because he, he, you know, is arguing that there's a gender framework, an alternative gender framework through which black masculinity and black men and boys need to be studied and understood. And that, you know, oftentimes trying to understand that reality through a feminist framework can produce particular distortions. So I, uh, I agree. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean that, that, that his, his book aside, um, there, are, I think there are some really valuable points to take away from thinking, always remembering that gender has multiple sides, right. And it's not just a matter of women or feminism, but also other ways that we think about and shape, um, people of other genders, to be honest, in our society. I really like the point that you made, too, about the fact that we can't conscript everything to feminism, um, particularly because in some ways that tends to overshadow, and oftentimes can oftentimes can overshadow some of the other work that's being done as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that people would rather not discuss um, as deeply. So even as we're looking back at, at some movements that were explicitly feminist, um, there's a lot missing in popular discourse about those movements when it comes to their class politics or their internationalist politics, specifically because feminism has become a sort of um, safe place to inhabit without interrogating some of these other more material, or not more material, but other material um, issues that we need to examine more deeply. The last thing I wanted to ask you, and this is, it's sort of a cheesy question, probably one you get (laughs) asked a lot, but I think it's an important question um, as we continue in our lives, right, to kind of think about uh, what does the future look like for you? And what do you think are some of the lessons perhaps that we should be looking to the past to better understand as we move forward? Um, And also for movements themselves, because I think you know, a lot of times we get into this habit of, well, we don't want to criticize the movement or we don't want to, you know, lob too much um, negativity towards something because we don't want to bring them down at this moment. We have to kind of empower them now and and hope that they, I don't know, magically figure out how to change for the better. But I'm really curious about what you, as someone who studies history um, and who studies political economy, what do you think about the, the future of a lot of the concurrent movements that we're seeing pop up and become stronger in the present, particularly when it comes to um, left-leaning movements that are led by, comprised of people of color? Uh, well, keep, I, I am a curmudgeon, okay? I hate everything. <laughs> Let's just keep that in mind. And so I think, and, and also, let me say, like, I'm not an activist, right? And I'm not an organizer. And um, so I don't, I don't like, I don't, want to claim expertise in that regard. I'm an academic, Mm -hmm. you know, I, and I think deeply and I study kind of movements and, and, um, insurgency. Right. But I don't, um, I didn't come to consciousness through like being 
walking in the streets, like, you know, that, that, no, that wasn't me. I, I came to consciousness through books <laughs> and, um, through studying. Also and, valid. <laughs> right. Um, and so I say that to say, um, I'm always, you know, when I'm pontificating <laughs> with my friends, like, you know, I'll talk some shit, but I'm really, I'm really hesitant to do it in public just because I think that oftentimes we tear some shit down, but don't have anything to offer in its stead. So Black Lives Matter, for instance, that's not my politics, but they are, I think that there is a possibility that they might, that it is possible, right? That number one, I think that they're a reflection of where we are politically. Mm-hmm. So that says a lot about where we are politically. But but I also think that they're, you know, it's still very nascent. And, you know, people just think like the fucking bus boycott or whatever was just the bus boycott. Like, I'm sure that they, you know, I'm sure it was not all like Ivies and Pearls when it first started out. You know right. what I mean? I'm sure that there was a lot of, you know, I'm sure that there was a lot of ideological, you know, I, I'm sure that it was it was complicated. And the, the thing about our, our society is that we're it's so heavily mediated that all of the mistakes are happening in real time and they're happening in public. Right. And so, so I think that there's a way in which we can cast judgment in ways that we wouldn't we can't necessarily cast judgment or, or judgment wasn't cast on previous um, um, movements. That being said, I think that what we can learn from the past and what Walter Rodney wrote about CLR James that really stuck with me was that he was uncanny in contextualizing and historicizing everything. So when he would be talking about a debate, he would talk about how that debate was a reflection of that time and a reflection of what conversations were being had, what the broader kind of intellectual, political and social landscape was. And I don't think that we do that. And I think that the problem is, or that's what we can learn. I think that that's what we, we can learn from particular movements is that we have to be of these times. Right. So when we're talking about organizing, we need to think about questions like what does it mean to organize, not necessarily the proletariat, but those who have been sub-proletarianized, those who are de-proletarianized, and those who are, have been structurally unemployed. You know, if historically, or at least ideologically, it's the factory that brings people to consciousness, what does it mean when that when work is not routinized in that way, or when work is highly flexible um, and um, itinerant and um, contingent? Right. right. What does organization look like in this current milieu? What should protests look like in an era of extreme surveillance, but also um, self-interpolation into like the panopticon, so to speak? Right. Is marching the best way? Right. Our city, the marches and, and, and kind of protests and sit-ins do the same type of work now that they did when when televisual media was just coming into being mm-hmm. um, and when these tactics were kind of relatively novel. And especially when when warehousing <laughs> is real, mm-hmm. like the prison industrial complex is real and, and being, you know, being taken up into that system in various ways, you know, where, you know, being arrested now means something different than being arrested men in 1960 right um you know and i just wonder what tactics we ought to be using you know um i also think you know and and the philosopher stoop dog (laughs) once said (laughs) right the game is to be sold not to be told and i feel like you know i talked about this in a talk i did i think that we dry snitch on ourselves like we tell everything we're about to do so you know we name things like you know, Sankofa, African People's Liberation Front, 
which you know is gonna draw like surveillance. You know, it's gonna draw particular types of like <laughs> repression or particular types of attention that may or may not be wanted. And so it's like, you know, sometimes you might just wanna call something like post-it or table and just, but do the work though. You know, we don't have to declare shit all the time. And, and, you know, hearing Bracey talk about like the revolutionary action movement, that's something we can learn from them because they had their above ground stuff, but then they had a whole bunch of other stuff that they were doing. Right. Um, that was clandestine, mm-hmm. you know, to the point where John Bracey has this hilarious story about how like they were, you know, Ram was at this march and like a reporter was like, what's the name of your organization? And he like made up some shit. And so now, <laughs> and, and so, you know, now there's just some random name of some random organization, like in the historical imaginary that he just made up because he wasn't going to dry snitch. He wasn't going to tell them who it was so that then the cops could come looking for them. Right. Cause COINTELPRO was real. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that those are the, those are the types of lessons that we can learn. Like you don't need to be declaring shit. You don't need to put on your fucking black beret and you know, whatever it is that you do and like tell people and, and post on Twitter. It's like, just do your, just do your work. Right. And in fact, you might be more successful at it if you do it in that way. And so think about alternative ways of mobilizing. Um, you know, how do you how do you convene and how do you meet? How do you organize and mobilize in, in ways that are suitable to our historical moment? I don't know the answer. <laughs> See, I don't, have, I don't have any answers. I'm still trying to understand the problem. I'm that's I always say that because it's true. Um, but I think that these are the type of questions that we need to be asking. Um, and we can't lose sight of. There has to be an, a very kind of. Intentional dialectic between the utopian vision, the big vision, which is more my kind of project. And then the, the, the day to day and and the exigencies of like survival and of, of, um, consciousness building. And it's, it's always seems to be one or the other, but I think that these two are in constant tension and, and, and have a dialectical relationship. And so I think that we can't lose sight of that. And we need to fucking study. Like there's, there's such an anti-intellectualism, um, that's pervasive, that is, like, people do not fucking read, right? And I don't mean reading a blog post or a tweet, um, and this might sound elitist, and I don't care, because (laughs) people need to fucking read books, right? Right. Read articles, like, read stuff, because, um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, preparing for my course that I'm teaching in the winter called Black Revolution on Campus, and these people were reading. (laughs) They were, you know, they were, they were studying, Mm-hmm. They were writing position papers. There's so many position papers. They're writing manifestos. They're they are learning in real time. So they're reading historical things, but they're also reading things that were produced in their moment, right? And so I think that's something that's sorely missing is like that minister of information post is really important. Like y'all need to be having study groups, like learning, because that is well, knowledge is power. I do believe that. <laughs> that's, that's definitely true. I just, I think the only, the only thing that I would say to interrupt that, or not interrupt, but sort of, um, I don't know, draw a question into what you said, but then I'm going to backtrack myself, right? Um, play devil's advocate on my own comment. But I think one thing that, that can be helpful about maybe uh, things like social media and the like is it does introduce people to things that perhaps they don't necessarily have the time or energy to read 
um, even if it's in small bits. So that, that can be helpful if they don't have time to read a book. But at the same time, I'm sitting here saying to myself, well, wait, like there are people who are like straight up revolutionaries that came out of fields and they were reading and like organizing and doing things that in, in our time, if we were to, to look at it and say, well, we don't have time to do this, they definitely didn't have the time and definitely didn't have the energy. So I think, um, you know, I'm again, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate against myself, but I think that what you're saying here is really important. I think the larger question, though, then is how do you get people to read a book? Um, and that can be, that in and of itself is the challenge. And I say this as someone who teaches, right? Like, it, it's hard to get people to read. I think our attention spans are so short nowadays that sometimes the I think things that would be very beneficial end up becoming um, much easier said than done, you know? Yeah, I think that it just takes, I think that reading is a muscle, right? You have to practice at it. You have to be good at it. I mean, you, I mean, you don't have, you have to get good at reading. Um, I mean, I love reading. So, and I couldn't imagine my life, like how people feel about music is how I feel about reading. Like I couldn't imagine my life without books, but I, I think that we need to stop de-emphasizing it and, and stop making excuses about our attention span because I know n- people, excuse me, that can watch five hours of Netflix. Right. That takes an incredible amount of attention. Right. Yeah. I know people that spend five out. You attention is not the problem, right? It's motivation and it's focus. It's like, what do you choose to focus your time on? Cause ain't nobody that busy. There's <laughs> nobody that's that busy. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I, come on, people spend, when I had a Twitter, I had to get off Twitter because I am irresponsible on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, w- I could spend six hours on Twitter, mm-hmm. six hours, like tweeting about the game, tweeting about whatever, you know, thinking of pithy things to say. So people could spend six hours doing that, six hours on Instagram. Um, the average American watches four hours of TV a day. So, so there's time. Yeah. People got time. There definitely you know, is. <laughs> so, you know, I just think that that's a cop out. And I but I do think that we have to actively like re-emphasize reading. And so and it's not, you know, OK, you can watch some documentaries, too, like whatever, like, you know, but I think that there needs to be a renewed intellectual engagement. Do you remember when people used to have debates like Malcolm X and um, James Baldwin? Like um, I just watched one recently of Kwame Ture and and uh, Malefe Asante. Mm-hmm. When did intellectuals stop having debates? And I don't mean, I, and, and I think that this shit between West and um, Coates is emblematic of how much the intellectual comments has deteriorated. Mm-hmm. I don't mean a Twitter battle. I mean a debate. Mm-hmm. I mean, a debate that like actually articulates and grapples with substantive issues that matter. Like, I don't care about West's analysis of Coates. I care about how their, you know, how their perspectives differ and what they mean for a larger kind of political and social project. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I sometimes I think I'm of it. You know, I was born in the wrong time because it's like that. You know, I think that we need more of that. We need to have less conversations about race and more debates, like which means people have to study and know what they're talking about. We because we let people say anything, mm-hmm. and then that becomes that becomes a topic of debate. We let say that Trump is the first white president and we just, and then that becomes a topic of debate. We just let the sh- people just say stuff. And, and I, I just, I think that we need to start checking people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> facts. But then, yeah, exactly. Like with, with facts and with history, with history and with um, some substance, as opposed to just, I'm offended by that, or I don't agree with that, right. but kind of going deeper than that. Right. 
Um, and I think, as you said, I, that's the hard part because a lot of people maybe don't have that knowledge to do that, or they just don't, they haven't been exposed to certain things that they could raise in objection to some of these um, arguments that are being made. Yeah, I'm tired of feelings. Like, I, I want to write an arg- uh, article at some point called Fuck Your Feelings. Mm-hmm. I wrote like a, a journal article because it's like, I'm tired of, I'm tired of feelings and opinions. Okay. <laughs> I'm so tired of it. How you feel, that's cool. But there's all like that. There's more to like debate. There's more to um, discussion than how you feel about something. Right. And you there's know? also there's more to there's more to um, even discussions than just the personal. Right. There is there is some there is even a, a sort of sociocultural historical background even to how you feel that I don't think people necessarily tap into um, and even discuss if they were going to leave it at the level of feelings. Um, they never seem to even to, to go further than that, um, to think about where those feelings came from, right? Um, mm-hmm. in, sort of in their defense, um, but I, I think that there's, there is a lack of engagement or a lack of depth sometimes. And I think it is, in large part, um, sort of, uh, I don't know, encouraged by some of the, the turns in popular discourse, right? There isn't necessarily an emphasis on fact or history so much as there is on the way people feel, the way, like, if you think about people citing blogs as, you know, a footnote for a, a history paper, it's kind of, it, things have changed, and I don't know, personally, I'm not sure what to make of that. On the one hand, I think I'm, I'm in favor of it, and I, I think it's a good thing, but I also think that there definitely still has to be some rootedness in, in history, in fact, that I think is unfortunately losing ground in the present. But we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm old school. I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Hell no. And yeah. the thing, I, I take a hard line on many things because I feel like that's how you, I think you have to overcorrect to mm-hmm. just get back to the center, you know? And so sure, theoretically, yes, blocks, some blocks should be okay, but I'm just like, nah, because of the way that it's so ubiquitous, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm just like, nope. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't, mm. I'm old school. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you about 90% of the way, but I def- there's a, there's a part of me that's like, but there are history blogs and there are there are ways to merge the two. Um, and I think there needs to be more of that being done than just everything being reduced to personal feelings, which are valid, but at the at the end of the day don't really do much um, in terms of analysis, right? It doesn't doesn't yep. take us very far. But on that note, speaking of taking us very far, we have spoken for quite a while, and <laughs> I have I have a notebook here full of additional questions I'd love to ask you. Um, more people I want to learn about and want to hear about, um, but unfortunately, we have exhausted um, the time that we can spend. But I definitely want would love to have you back. I would love to continue this conversation if time should allow for you, at least. Um, at some point in the future and I really appreciate everything you said here and I hope that the people who've been listening have have gained a lot from from listening to you as much as I have because I definitely have have so many more questions to ask so (laughs) absolutely and thank you for having me I'd love to come back you know and continue to um, spread my curmudgeon (laughs) analysis (laughs) so yeah thank you for having me That was the fifth episode of the Left Pocket Project podcast. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about the Left Pocket Project, please check us out on Facebook, and that's facebook.com slash leftpoc, 
and on Twitter at twitter.com slash leftpoc or simply at leftpoc. You can also show your support and get sneak previews and other goodies via Patreon at patreon.com slash leftpoc. Thanks so much again. Happy New Year and see you soon.